Scripture reading comes to us this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you that you meet us in this place. Thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you have kept us throughout the years, and that you have so much more in store for us in the days ahead. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to believe it this morning. Give us those eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit would say to your church today. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'll begin today, given the depth and uh, solemnity of this passage, by asking a A very deep, ancient, philosophical question. What is reality? Depending on who you ask, you might get some very strange answers to that question. Uh, If you look for answers to that question on reality TV, for instance, or social media, for the answer, you will certainly be deceived, deceived into thinking, ah, this is how I should find a husband or a wife or friends or acceptance or peace and joy and satisfaction in life. We know that what's on TV and social media is by and large just a performance. It's not what my father used to call real life. It's not. It's a virtual life. It's a manipulated portrayal of life. But that portrayal of real life can easily draw us in to believing that it is real, but it's not. Reality is defined as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. 
Reality is not imagination or fantasy or opinion. It's what actually is. Now, ideas and dreams can one day become a reality. But until they actually exist, they are not reality. Now, the passage before us this morning is all about reality. How things really are. How things actually are for the man and woman of God. Now, last week we were reminded of how uh, in the preceding verses, there's trouble in Ephesus. And it has to do with a uh, confrontation of realities. One real reality and one manipulated, projected idea of reality. And we were reminded that godliness with contentment is great gain. And godliness with contentment is not just doing things that are pleasing to God, but also being pleased with what God does in our lives. Now, I'd like to uh, follow in Pastor Tim's footsteps here and, and quote someone for you, a uh, great theologian, a well-regarded, highly regarded man of God. Let's see if you can figure out who it is. Being pleased with what God does, being content in our circumstances, flows out of being pleased with what God says. Living toward God, for God, before God, is what we were created for. It's the only way we can find lasting joy and peace. And security. Figure out who it is? It's our very own Right Reverend Dr. Timothy Fox. That was in last week's sermon. He is a great theologian. He is a highly regarded man of God. Imitate him. Godliness with contentment is great gain. <clears throat> Others may ridicule it. Some may not accept it. But the text tells us, but as for you, O man of God. Now Paul uses the term man here because, well, Timothy's a man. So he says, man of God. He calls him by this label, by this title, because it's not only who he is, it's not a general description, it's a very deep, reflective, realistic description of him in the here and now, in reality. Timothy, that's for you, O oh man of God. All the follows here, applies, as we heard last week, to every believer, to every man or woman who believes in God, who belongs to God. It's a sacred privilege to be identified as one belonging to God. 
It's a privilege, but it carries a very grave responsibility. So now we are faced with the very practical question. How then is a man or woman of God to conduct himself or herself? As Francis Schaeffer put it, how then shall we live? In this passage, we're going to see four characteristics that mark out the true man of God. The man of God is marked out as one who uh, not only has the godliness with contentment that he's already spoken about here, but the first characteristic of the man of God is what he flees from, and then what he follows after, and then what he fights for, and then what he's faithful to. A man of God is known by what he flees from. Paul has just been talking in the preceding verses about the way that at least some of the false teachers in Ephesus have been promoting a version of Christianity that was deeply corrupt and which taught, among other things, that godliness was a means to financial gain. They were lovers of money rather than lovers of God. And the sad truth is they were leading others away from the faith in the midst of it. But the man of God is described here in stark contrast. He is one who realizes there are certain things to be avoided at all costs. The man of God isn't just told here to avoid them, be careful of them, Watch out for them. Be wary of them. He is told to flee from these things. We see in the preceding verses, beginning in verse 4, that the false teachers, in contrast to the man of God, were puffed up with conceit. They understood nothing. They had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce... Many sins, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And of course, in verse 10, it speaks of the, the great example he used in those preceding verses, the great sin that he here tells Timothy, the man of God, to flee, and that is the love of money, the love of money that is the root of all of evil we're not just to be wary of these sins we are to run away from all of these things because they would tempt us to believe a lie to live contrary to the word of God to love something more than we love God well what are the things in your life that consistently produce dissatisfaction and discontent in your heart? What are the situations that consistently cause you to discount, to devalue, to despise the blessings that you've already received at God's hand? Whatever they are, you need to flee them because they would nurture ungodly desires in your heart 
and perhaps even plunge you into ruin and destruction. Yes, the man of God is known by what he flees from. He's also known by what he follows after. Flee these things, it says, but then it says pursue these other things. The man of God not only flees from sin, but is also told to continually pursue holiness. This is a parallel uh, verse to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. There is this pattern that the Apostle Paul keeps echoing over and over again throughout the pastoral letters that he's written, that we are to flee those things which would destroy us and pursue those things that would give us life, real life, real life. That pattern is rooted throughout Scripture, the flee and pursue pattern. And you have to stop the first to really pursue the latter. You can't take your sin and pursue holiness. It doesn't work that way. It will blind you to those road markers, those landmarks that that point out what holiness really looks like. And he lists several of them here. Pursue these things, not those things. Flee those things. Pursue, he begins with, righteousness. Now he's not speaking of that which belongs to Christ, which is imputed to us at conversion. But rather here he speaks of living rightly. Doing what is right toward God and man. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that is marked by obedience to what God has commanded us to do. Listening to what God says and obeying God. This obedience reflects the reality of our conversion. The reality that Christ truly dwells in us. And then he mentions godliness. Godliness here, speaking of that internal characteristic which has to do with our attitudes and our motives. It's right behavior that flows from right motives. It's a familiar term throughout Paul's letters and it refers to a reverence for God flowing out of a worshiping heart. And he says, pursue faith. A confident trust in God for everything. It's the very air that we breathe. The atmosphere in which the man of God exists in. This faith he mentions here that he is to pursue involves a loyalty to the Lord God Almighty and an unwavering confidence in His power, in His purpose, in His provision, and in His promise to those who belong to Him. And this here he links with love. That unrestricted, unrestrained, encompassing love for God and man that He has charged us with in the great commandment. Remember in Matthew chapter two, uh, 22, rather, uh, that greatest commandment that Jesus spoke of. Yes, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know we're not saved by loving God and by loving our neighbor. But having been saved by grace through faith, we love. We love God. And we love others. It's the proof of God's grace at work in us for all to see. Others here, it mentions, have shipwrecked their faith by loving themselves and loving other things rather than God. But the man of God remains steadfast. That's the next characteristic that he is to pursue. Being steadfast. And it speaks of a perseverance. A remaining under the gracious call of God. It's a patient endurance that reflects a victorious, triumphant, unswerving loyalty to the Lord even in the midst of the harshest trials. I I have this picture of one that is steadfast, that is persevering to the very end no matter how horrible it is. I get this picture. I remember, I don't remember what year it was back in the Olympics when I was growing up, but there was this long distance runner who came around and you know, after they run their long marathon, they come into the stadium and they run around the track one time before they get to the finish line. And there was this poor guy who had gotten onto the track and he's, he's weaving all around. And then in the last straightaway, he falls. And he's literally crawling because his old wobbly legs won't even hold him up anymore. He's persevering, enduring to the very end. It reflects a victorious, triumphant, unswerving loyalty to that which he had been called to do, whether he was first place or last place. It did not matter. He was going to finish the race. Such a steadfastness is not haughty or proud. It does not boast. It does not brag. But rather it tells us here the next characteristic to pursue and that is gentleness. Gentleness reflects a kindness, a meekness that shows a recognition in the man of God that though he is involved in the greatest of all causes, he makes no contribution to its success. It's the final characteristic that the Apostle Paul uses to contrast the man of God with the false teachers who promote controversies rather than the work of God. And he reflects back to chapter uh, 1, verse 4, as he echoes that. Well, all of that's fine and good. It's good to have a list of things to do. (laughs) Right? My wife loves to have lists. Mark, oh, there you mark that off. Okay. That's not what this is. Okay? All of that's fine and good, but what does it mean to pursue? The, the word pursue here is an active verb. It's an ongoing action. It's not just try it once and then, oh well. Okay, that's not really pursuing. What does it mean to pursue these things? Other scriptures make it clear that Paul expected believers to imitate him. To follow his example. He would have expected Timothy to pursue these things by recalling Paul 
manner of life. You remember when we first started this series in 1 Timothy, uh, Pastor Tim told us that, that Timothy has been this companion of the Apostle Paul for a long time, years. So he's lived with Paul, he's seen Paul, and now Paul says, imitate these things, recall my manner of life, is what he's telling him. Pursue these things by recalling Paul's manner of life, by reflecting on his words and deeds, and then by imitating those things. That's the pattern here that he asks Timothy. That's how he is to pursue these things. Well, the practical question for us is to ask, who are the godly people that God has placed in our lives? How are they pursuing these things? Do you struggle with gentleness? Look at the gentle people God has placed in your path, in your church family. Listen to how they say things. Watch the way uh, they do or refrain from doing certain things. Do you struggle with love? Locate the believers around you whom God has obviously given a very big and generous heart who love in word and in deed. And then learn from them. God has given each of us abundant resources for the pursuit of holiness right in this room. Recall godly people that God has already given you, the blessing of those godly people in your life. Recall their manner of life. Reflect on their words and actions. And then begin to imitate those things. That is how we are to pursue these wonderful things. Well, the man of God is known by what he flees from, by what he follows after. He also is known by what he fights for. Now make no mistake about it, this is no vacation we are on. We are at war. This war is not something to be avoided. It's not something to be denied. The text tells us here it is a good fight worth engaging in. We're not to sit back and wait for the battle to come to us. We're instead to be proactive by fleeing and pursuing. That's the good fight of the faith. The good fight of the faith. All those particular truths about God that Timothy had been taught, the lessons he had learned over the years in his walk with God, the faith. Now some had wandered away from the faith, from those truths. But here, he is called to fight for them. Fight the good fight of the faith. That's more than uh, just preserving doctrinal purity. It's about living out the truth. It's about living out real life as we know it is whether other people agree with us or not. That's the reality of the Christian life. So this war that we fight was started by faith 
And God calls us to fight it with the weapons He has put at our disposal. And He tells us to fight it in the way God intends for us to fight. And that way is by faith. By trusting in God. Trusting that what God says is true. What He calls us to. What He tells us to do. To flee and pursue is the way of holiness. While we may from time to time find ourselves having to refute wrong doctrine, the reality is the biggest, most sustained battle we face is the one in our own hearts as we struggle to believe that what God has said is really true. That He has accomplished what He says He's accomplished. That He will do what He has said He will do. That what, he is, uh, that what has been promised to us as heirs, as children of the living God, children of the covenant, is already secure. It is truly ours in Christ Jesus. Uh, a well-known pastor and author, uh, John Piper, said this about this. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us and will continue to enslave us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. Which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. All that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without Him. In other words, we have to fight fire with fire. A harmful affection will only be destroyed ultimately by a greater, more godly affection. So when Paul tells Timothy to flee the sinful loves of those around him, to pursue more godly realities instead, he follows up that call, that charge to fight the good fight of the faith with a good reason behind it. Fight the good fight of the faith. Why? Why should we? Because the Apostle Paul knows that unless that pursuit of holiness is one born of faith, unless it is the pursuit of one who is actively abandoning old affections in pursuit of a greater hope and promise, then that pursuit will be short-lived. Unless we're learning to believe that the life promised by God now is greater than any life promised by sin, then we'll soon run out of gas. We will abandon the pursuit. We will not finish the race. And so we can see that the man of God is truly known by the fourth characteristic. What he's faithful to. Take hold, he says in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of it. 
take hold of the eternal life. Why does he tell him to take hold of something he already possesses? We know that it's possible to possess something without really embracing it and enjoying it. The verb here for take hold is one that suggests a very forceful taking hold of something. So Paul is not saying that we should go out and get ourselves some eternal life. Go grab some eternal life. But instead that we should grasp that which is already ours. We should cling to it. We should truly, really take hold of it. Really take hold of the truth of our eternal life. In Christ, it's the difference between holding something lightly and holding on to something. It's the difference between uh, the way you would hold a little child's hand as you walk in the park and the way you would hold his hand as you stand on a busy street corner in downtown New York, waiting for the light to change, fearful that this child might be run over, or, or if let loose, run off into oncoming traffic. See, it's a different kind of holding on. Or it's like in the Lord of the Rings, if you saw the movie, The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, in that scene where Sam and Frodo have finally made it into to the, the very depths and center of Mount Doom, almost completing the task, and, and Frodo has, has been overcome by the power of the ring and wants to keep it for himself, but, and then he fights with Gollum, and, and, and then he goes over the edge of the cliff. And Sam comes running up to the edge, and there's Frodo hanging on with one hand. And you remember what Sam says? Sam says, Take my hand. Don't you let go. Don't you let go. That's what it means. It's that kind of taking hold of eternal life here. And God calls every believer to take hold of the eternal life to which we have been called. It's a calling. It's a call to continue to believe that what He has said is true. It's a call to walk by faith and not by sight. And so he gives Timothy a charge here. I charge you. I charge you in the presence of Almighty God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is his, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you, Timothy, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the sure and certain appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a charge to keep that commandment unstained and free from reproach, to live in such a way according to what God has already told us, the truth of it, the reality of it, and to let that truth that we hold so dear be so wrought in our hearts that our lives are transformed in such a way that all who see us would say, oh, that one knows God. That one walks with God. That one, that one loves like God. 
And therein lies the single greatest motivating factor for a man or woman of God. The character of the God we serve. There's truly only one source of strength for all believers through all time. And that's God Himself. Confidence in Him and understanding His character lay the foundation that bring courage and strength for us to face any trial. And the last few verses here uh, of this passage, we get a glimpse of one of the most magnificent presentations of God's character found throughout Scripture. Each phrase here expressing the transcendent, incomparable greatness of our God. May He enable us to show forth in our lives the very character of the One who has loved us so well. So in closing, let's, let's set the, the eyes of our heart back upon Him. Let's hear these words again. This One who has called us, who has set us apart in Christ Jesus, the One who has loved us so well beginning in the middle of chapter of uh, verse 15. He speaks here of the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, thank you for the love that you have shown us, the things that you have blessed us with, the truth, the reality of life in Christ. Thank you that it's not based on how hard we hold on to you, but how firmly you have taken hold of us. And, oh God, we hear your call. We hear your charge to us today that we would take hold of the reality of eternal life in Christ. Lord, enable us to have the strength. Help us to flee. And help us to pursue the way you have called us to do so. And may you forever have all the honor and eternal dominion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.